Amen. All right. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We'll look at verses 38 through 50 today. And uh, before we dive into that, I want you to ask you something. I pose a, a situation. Um, if, if you were to ask a couple to prove their love and commitment for one another uh, to you, like maybe just say like on their wedding day. Like they're about to get married and you go, listen, before you two go through with this, I need you to prove to me that you love one another. Prove to me that you're committed to another, one another. What could they possibly do? What could they possibly do? You know, they, they might be able to like say some nice things. They might be able to say, to express, uh, you know, words of, of commitment and love, explain why they're wanting to do this thing. They, they could maybe share in a, a passionate kiss. Maybe they could buy each other real expensive, expensive gifts or something like that, or do something, some extraordinary act of service. But ultimately, none of it would ever prove, you would never know for sure that they were committed. You may have probably been, I know I've been to a wedding where I, I thought like, wow, this couple like, seems great. Everything seems great. They seem to really love each other. And then it doesn't work out, right? We see that happen all the time. And so we can't know for sure. There's no way to prove it with one extraordinary act. The only proof will come when they continue to live day by day, year by year. And, it, and that comes in and daily act out that love and commitment. They daily show one another that love and commitment by living it out in ordinary days. So I bring that up not, not because today's message isn't about romantic love, but it is about proof to some extent. Jesus is, is being asked to prove himself with some extraordinary act in the beginning we get, as we pick up here. We're actually picking up in the middle of a conversation. Uh, we're picking up from where we were last week. Last week, if you remember, we started off with Jesus healing a demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees, they come at him with an accusation. They say, you did that by the power of Beelzebul. You did that by the power of Satan. You used demonic power to cast out that demon. And then Jesus responds vigorously in his defense and, and uh, explains why that doesn't make any sense at all. And then starts to level some accusations and, and criticisms against them. He starts to tell them about what they're really like and how they have failed and how they have problems. He starts to kind of come back at them with these things. He tells them that they've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He tells them that they'll be condemned by their words. And this, is, and this is where we pick up. So he's just gone on this kind of tirade against the Pharisees, and now they're going to respond. And here's how they respond in verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So it's really kind of crazy that, that the Pharisees 
uh, Jesus just, t- he, he just got off, he told them, you're a brood of vipers. You know, he says, essentially, you're a bunch of snakes. You're evil. You, you'll be condemned by your words. And they say, in response, show us a sign. It's so weird. Such a weird thing to say in response. It's as they say, like, show us a magic trick. Essentially what they're saying. They want to see him do something extraordinary. They want a sign from him. And this was, he'd he'd already been giving them signs, right? He's been doing miracles all over the place. This is not at the very beginning of his ministry. He's been doing it for a while. He's been traveling all around. The word has spread. His fame is growing. They've seen it, but they want further proof. Because that's what we're like. We always want more and more and more. We want to see something better, something bigger. Right? We want to see something more extraordinary. We went to the, the Folsom Rodeo last week. Um, maybe some of you guys did too. And at the end, they had these like motorcycle jumps, right? Where these guys like set up these big ramps and they launch these like motorcycles and, and do like tricks and stuff. But I noticed that as, as it was going, like one would go and I wasn't like, oh, that was cool. Uh, that's enough. You know, that's not how I felt. I wasn't like, that was good enough. That was amazing enough for me. You did a cool enough jump, you can be done. No, I'm like, what, do something else. <laughs> right? Do something better. Let's do a, do a flip. Do a flip. Now, if they do a flip, they go like, do, can you do two? Like, you know, you want, you know, you're never like, that was good enough. I'm impressed. That's as, that's as much as you can do. No, that, and that's why they do it that way, right? Because they know you're going to want more and more and more. If they start with their most amazing jump, you're expecting something better after that. That's what we're like as humans. That's what the Pharisees are like. They've seen Jesus do these things. They want more. But Jesus knows that's never going to be enough for them. There's never going to be enough proof for them. And they're only looking for that proof. They're not looking for what's deeper. They're not listening to what he's saying. And this is something that the Israelites were notorious for. To such an extent that Paul could comment on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Paul kind of used some, some stereotypes, some generalities there, and he says, generally, this group of people, they want to see signs, they want miracles, they want big stuff. This other group, they want clever words. And ultimately, Jesus isn't enough for either of them, because we simply preach Christ crucified. So this is something that they had a reputation for, and they're living up to it here. And, and he'd been providing evidence, but it's never going to be enough. There's never going to be something extraordinary enough for them to believe in Jesus. And some people are still like that today, where there's never enough for Jesus. There's never, Jesus can't do enough for you. He can't reveal himself to you enough. Jesus responds by telling them that they are an evil and adulterous generation. Because you're an evil and adulterous generation. He's saying you basically, you're evil. You continue to walk in your sin. You have this sin nature and you continue to walk in your sin and live in your sin, live in rebellion against your creator. And you're adulterous in that when he would use that term in this way to a group of people, he's not saying you're all cheating on your husbands and wives. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that in terms of their worship of God, they're adulterous. 
This is how God speaks of his relationship with his people is as though it was, it's a marriage relationship. And he says, you're, you're going after other gods. You're essentially committing adultery on me. I should be your only God, and yet you're going off and worshiping these other gods, following these other things. You're an adulterous generation. And he tells them that the only sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. He says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, he'll be in the heart of the earth, essentially the grave, for three days. And this is to contrast the way that the Ninevites responded to Jonah's preaching. They repented and returned to Yahweh, but this generation won't. The generation that Jesus is preaching to, they won't listen even though he is the greater Jonah. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's a good thing Jesus is the greater Jonah because Jonah uh, was, I don't know, we hear about the story of Jonah. So often we just focus on the Jonah and the whale because that's the, that's the fun version to teach kids. That's why, right? It's children's ministry fault. Sorry, Sarah. It's, it's, the, it's the fault of children's ministry of like, we just like, there's, you can do a cool craft with like, put Jonah in the whale, you know, like, that kind of thing. Like, that, that's what we focus on. But that part of the story is like a pretty small part of the story. Jonah is called to go and preach to the, the, the Ninevites, these foreigners. He's called to go preach to them and he doesn't want to because he hates them. He hates them. He, he, he's like prejudiced against them. And, and so he doesn't want to go preach to them. So he goes the other way, gets swallowed by the fish, which fish spits him out, and then he does it. He's like, fine, I'll go. And he goes. And he preaches to the Ninevites, and he's like, this is what God said. And he says it real, he, he's still not on board. He just doesn't want to go in a whale again. And he, he tells them, here's what God said, and they go like, that, thank you so much, this is amazing. Like, we need to change, and they repent, and they're like, Sackcloth and ashes, like they're on board. They immediately, they respond in repentance. And Jonah is mad. He's mad that they responded to his preaching. So think about how, what a bad job he tried to do. And yet they still responded. And he's mad that they responded. And he goes off and pouts. And you can read the whole thing if you want to. But, but like Jesus is saying, I'm the greater Jonah. Like, good thing. He's the greater Jonah. Good thing this isn't an exact, like, I am like Jonah. I didn't want to come here, right? That's not, what, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is as close, but he's contrasting the fact that the Ninevites responded to the word of God when they heard it. They responded appropriately. They repented. He provides another example of proper, proper response to God's word in the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. And this story comes from... Uh, the book of Kings. And this woman is a queen in, in southern Arabia, and she travels to Israel uh, to hear from Solomon. She has heard that Solomon has wisdom from Yahweh, and she goes to hear it, and she hears it, she receives it, she values it enough to travel that far, and, and she responds to it. She values what, what Yahweh has to say through Solomon. And Jesus again says, the greater Solomon is here. He says like, I'm the greater Solomon. I'm the greater Jonah. This is something that Matthew in general is trying to highlight in his gospel is how Jesus is the greater version of these Old Testament heroes. Like when we read the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing how Jesus is the greater Moses. Now he's showing the greater Jonah and he's the greater Solomon. 
And again, the real thing is to highlight the responses of the people. And this is meant to be an especially stinging uh, comparison for them because the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, Queen of Sheba, they're both foreigners. So he's saying these people who aren't even God's chosen people, they're listening, but you're not listening. You're not listening to what I have to say. You're not responding to what I have to say. All you want to do is look at the signs. All you want to do is see the miracles. All you want is, the, is that stuff. You're not paying attention to what I'm saying. Because the words of Jesus, the teaching, the preaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus are more important than his miracles. They're more important than his miracles. Okay, Jesus' miracles are, are like youth group games. Now that might be, am I going to get in trouble for that? I might get in trouble for that. But it's like when, when, when you run youth ministry and like Jason is, is doing and I, I did for 15 years, you do all kinds of crazy and silly stuff, right? You like have crazy games and you're like, like this week, Jason and I are taking the kids to Six Flags. Like you do all kinds of crazy things. And, and, for, and, 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 a, and as a youth pastor, you're often accused of like, that's the reason you do this job right? It's because you get to do that stuff. And, and you just like, you're just a kid and you just like that stuff. But no, that's not why we do it. We don't do that stuff. We don't do that crazy stuff because we like that part. We don't hate it, but like we, that's not the reason that we have a squirt gun war. We do it so that we can earn the right to be heard for 15 minutes. We can share the word of God with these kids because we've run enough energy out of them and, and given them enough to, that they will want to listen to us. And then we have a chance to speak to them and we build relationships with them so we have a chance to speak into their lives. Like Jason sometimes goes and, and goes and hangs out in the skate park or something like that with these kids. Like he doesn't like that. He wants to be home with his wife. But he goes and does it because that gives you the chance to be heard by these kids. That's what Jesus is doing. All the miracles, all that stuff, it, it, was, it, had more, it has more merit, I, I grant you. It's more, there's more natural merit in the miracles that Jesus does than our thing. But it has a similar structure of he's doing those things to gather a crowd, to get attention so he can speak. The words that he has to say are more important than those things. But so often they got distracted like these Pharisees. They want a sign. They're like, do another magic trick, Jesus. Show us another miracle. But we get that way too. We get that way too where we want God to do something miraculous in our lives. We want some, God to do something extraordinary, something big that would be flashy and like then we'd know for sure what, it, what, it, what he wants us to do. But so often it's just pretty simple and ordinary because the word of God can seem that way because it's foundational. But so often we ask God to speak to us or ask God to show us a sign or something. When he's like, I already, I gave you, they answered your questions in the Bible. I gave it to you already. You've had it sitting on your shelf, gathering dust. You're just not reading it. You're not hearing my words. You're not listening. You want to see something extraordinary, but I've given you what you need. The proper response is, is acceptance and Repentance. It's the point of these illustrations that he makes. Now, we're going to take a quick, this is like an offshoot section that we're called Bible College. 
Okay, we're a quick offshoot section called Bible College. We're going to have two of these breaks today. We have them occasionally. I just don't normally tell you when they're happening. <laughs> okay. So you may have noticed that it says uh, three days and three nights. Jesus will be in the heart of earth three days and three nights. And if you are good at math, you might be thinking like, wait a minute. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. I know I've come to a Good Friday service. And then if he's resurrected on Sunday, at best, that's three days and two nights. At best. But it's not even a full three days. If he's up on Sunday morning, that's not even a full three days. What are you talking about? So let's break this down a little bit. Why does this say three days and three nights? Well, first of all, one of the ways that you hear this talked about all the time um, by like Bible scholars is they say, well, listen, for the Jews, any part of a day counted as a day. But you don't need that first part because that's true for us. That's true for us too. Any part of a day counts as a day? Yeah, yeah. That when you think about and talk in normal life, any part of a day counts as a day. You're not counting 24-hour periods, right? If you leave work on Friday and you go out of town and you come back Sunday evening and then on Monday you're talking to a friend and they say, oh, how you been and everything? You say like, oh, we spent three days uh, out on the coast. And they wouldn't go, wait a minute. You are at work on Friday and you're back, on, you're back at work on Monday. There's no way you were gone three full days. Right? You're not going to do that because you, everyone gets it. Like you say three days, like you're not, you're not saying it has to be 24, three, 24 hour periods. Like that's not at all what we mean by that. So, so when he says three days, like that, that our normal, the normal way we think about it works with three days, right? That Friday afternoon sometime till Sunday morning, that, that works as three days. First of all, um, Secondly, this is the only place in the New Testament that includes three nights. Nowhere else does it say he's going to be in the grave three days and three nights. This is the only place. Most of the time it says three days. And actually, most of the time it says on the third day. And we think about it as on the third day, that clears up all these problems, right? Because if we go, okay, Friday uh, afternoon, Saturday, Sunday morning is on the third day that this thing happened. So that... That makes sense when we think of it as on the third day. And I, I've, I've, uh, I've listed the, the next passage here for you, Matthew 16, 21. Here's one example where it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, and I've listed, if you have the study guide, I've listed all the other scriptures that mention the third day, so you can go look them up. But, but right here, I want you to know, the reason I picked this one to highlight, to talk about it being on the third day, is that this is Matthew 16, 21. We're in Matthew 12. So this is just four chapters later. And Matthew, as he's writing this, doesn't, doesn't sense a contradiction between these things. Because he would note it. He would note it if he thought that there was a contradiction here. Also notice that in this passage specifically, he says... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, etc. Matthew sees this moment, Matthew 16, as the time when Jesus starts talking about his timeline. Starts talking about the timeline for his death and resurrection. Not in chapter 12. 
in chapter 12, Matthew doesn't think he started trying to explain this yet. He says this is something else. But this is where he's actually kind of trying to break it down, having to get them to understand that he's going to be killed and be raised on the third day. So what that means is, what I mean by that is not that he's not talking about his death at all here and resurrection at all here, but that what his main purpose, what's his main purpose in this section, in our, in our section today, when he says three days and three nights, is actually to quote the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So he's directly quoting the book of Jonah there, where he says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then he says, so the Son of Man. And just for symmetry, he's going to make those two things the same. He's going to say them the same way. So his, his primary purpose is not to give a timeline for his death and resurrection. His primary purpose here is highlighting the Ninevites' response in contrast to the Pharisees' response. And he's, again, he's saying, I'm like Jonah. I'm like Jonah. But he's not saying I'm the same as Jonah. Again, we went over what Jonah was like. We don't want him to be exactly the same. So if in his character and his means of developing, of, of, of sending the message, he's not the same, then I'm okay with the fact that he's not exactly on the timeline of the time Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Right? It's okay that those things are slightly different. It's an analogy. It's going to break down somewhere. This also isn't the only instance of this kind of apparent inconsistency with these terms. In Esther chapter 4, verses 16, starting in verse 16, uh, Esther's making this plan. It's like a really big story, but you just see real quick here that she tells, says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on, on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I am a woman will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. So notice, he tells, Esther implements a fast that she says should last three days, night and day, or three days and three nights, right? She says three days, night and day, we're to have this fast. I'm going to do it too. You guys are going to do it. I'm going to do it. The young women are going to do it. We're going to fast three days, night and day. Then, it says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. So it says that she's, she implements this fast and she says she lasts three days and three nights. She says she's going to do it too and then she's going to go to the king. And on the third day, she goes to the king without seeming that there's a contradiction here. So what we're saying is maybe for the Jews, this wasn't an exact period of time. Maybe this was, maybe saying three, day, three days and three nights wasn't trying to be so specific. Maybe it was more like when we say the weekend. Maybe it's more like that. Maybe it's more like Friday through Sunday kind of idea. Okay, let's continue here. If you have any questions about that, I love to talk about that stuff. No one ever wants to. Um, all right, <laughs> verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." So it seems here that Jesus is, is pivoting real quick. He's, he's been talking to the Pharisees, but he had just healed this guy. He had just cast the demons out of this guy. And it seems here that he stops, and now he's addressing this guy to talk about what happens after an exorcism. What's going to happen after this is over, right? You, I've cast this demon out of you. And he's essentially telling them, listen, this isn't a permanent fix. You're not done. Like, you've got work to do. You can't just remain empty. You've got to fill yourself with something better, or you could end up worse than you were before. And I think any of us that have ever tried to change, tried to either like get some sin out of your life or just kind of break a bad habit or something like that, try to change yourself. If you don't fill the space that that thing used to take up, if you're going to like quit something, some activity or something like that, if you don't find something new to put in there, it's going to come back. You're going to go back to your old behavior if you don't find something to replace it with. The Apostle Peter actually expands on this teaching in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of this world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back to the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So you can see there, he's even quoting practically the words um, of Jesus where he says the last state becomes worse for them than the first. He's directly calling back. I mean, Peter was there for this incident, so he knows this teaching. And it's likely this wasn't the only time Jesus said it. But he's saying, listen, this is, this is something you have to replace. You have to replace God with godly things. You have to replace it with things of the Lord, things of the Holy Spirit. Those things have to replace the bad things or they're not going, it's not going to stay that way. It can get actually even worse. But then he puts a little twist on this passage at the very end where he, he, he kind of, again, at first it seems like he's pivoted, like he was talking to the Pharisees and addressing them, and then he turns, and I think he even does, I think it's like he turns and he starts talking to the man that he just cast this demon out of, or at least is at least referencing him. And then at the end of that discussion where he talks about these things, he like almost turns to the Pharisees and says, so it will be with this evil generation. It doesn't seem like that's what he's talking about, but he like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this wasn't just about this guy. This is actually about this evil generation. Because what he's referencing here is the fact that there had been attempts throughout Israel's history to reform, to reform the temple, to return to, to proper worship. They, there are various times when there were actual idols and pagan worship that happened in the temple. These things had been blended throughout, constantly being brought in, constantly um, committing adultery on, on Yahweh. This had happened over and over again, but there had been attempts over and over again to clear that stuff out and to go back. 
the Pharisees were actually one of these movements. The Pharisees were a movement that started about 150 years before Jesus was born. And their name simply means separatist. And their primary, the thing they started out with was a, a movement to uh, remain separate from the cultures that were encroaching on them, from the worship that was encroaching on them. So their ideas were like, let's get this pagan worship out of here. Let's get these foreign gods out of here and return the temple to what it should be. They started with good intentions, in fact, to call people back to the law of Moses. But then they went to the extreme. They didn't stick with Yahweh, they went to the extreme and they had started having these extreme views on the law. Like they decided that um, the laws regarding uh, uh, purity for temple service, so the priests had specific laws of things they had to do in order to serve in the temple and it was pretty extreme. But it was what they should do, what God wanted them to do. The Pharisees decided everybody should do that all the time. All of us should do that, live that way all the time, not just those who are serving in the temple. And that's the kind of thing they, they decided to do. They're constantly kind of expanding and saying, no, just do more and more and more. Let's make this more extreme. Let's be more religious. The more religious we can be, the better. And so what Jesus is calling out is the fact that, like, listen, you, could, you can clean out the temple over and over again all you want, but you just continue to have more evil coming in. You continue to have more evil coming in because you don't return to the heart of Yahweh. You don't invite my presence back in. And so you're just going to continue having these demonic forces that come in and take over. So that's true in individuals. It's true in cultures. It's true in families. That if we don't replace it with something better, then something worse will come. We'll continue here, verses 46 through 50. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does not, who do, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we start this passage with a, a visit from mom, right? Mom and, and the brothers, they, they show up and uh, they show up while this exchange is still going on. And, and it, it seems at first that his response is kind of unkind where he's like, who are they, right? Who do I, they, I don't need to go talk to them, right? Seems like his kind of response. He's, he seems like almost borderline disrespectful. Is he being disrespectful? I don't know. Like, we're, we're not sure. What is, what, what is he saying here? Why is he saying this? Well, we want to point out a couple things. One is that uh, Matthew doesn't provide us as much context as Mark does for this passage. Because Mark actually added a thing in uh, before Jesus ever got in the house. Before Jesus gets in the house and, and, and casts out this demon, he tells us what's going on in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, in his account of this incident. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So this isn't a friendly family visit, right? This is, this is Mary gathering up her other boys and being like, let's go get him because he's crazy. 
They want to stop his ministry and stop him from teaching and, and doing all these things and like drag him home. Can you imagine? That's such a crazy idea that Jesus, that God incarnate, his like brothers are going to come try to take him away. And so when they say like, hey, they're coming to speak with you, like Jesus knows this isn't, this isn't like, oh, they just want to see me. No, they're trying to stop him. So that's part of the reason for his, his response. We also, like, it's also, I think, important to say that he didn't, he, he's saying this for a reason that we'll get to in a second, but he's, he's not saying it directly to them, and he does leave the house, like, right after this. So he, he would have talked to them, and they, wouldn't have, they would have been there, right? He would have seen them. So he probably sees them. Um, all right, time for Bible college part two, okay, real quick. All right. So if you were paying attention, we skipped verse 47. We, just, we didn't read it at all. And if you have your own Bible, it might have verse 47 in it. If you have an English standard version, which is the, standard, the, the, the uh, translation that I preach out of, uh, it doesn't have verse 47 in there at all. It just it goes from 46 to 48. And you go, what happened to 47? Well, we have to get into how... Bible translators, how Bible scholars figure out like what is the Bible? Because what they do, their goal is to figure out what were the original writings, meaning like when they're trying to go through Matthew, they go, okay, what did Matthew write down? They call it the autographs. And, and they, they just don't, they don't have those. They don't have, there's no original, original documents available. But there are thousands of manuscripts of copies from very early on, um, and, and then those go on, and because they would just have people that copy them down, copy them down, copy them down, and so then they take those and they put them out, lay them out in order. They go, okay, these are the earliest copies, and these are the later copies, or these are the ones that are in order. So these were like closest to copies of Matthew's original writing. Those are copies of copies, and they lay them out in order, and then they compare them, and they go like, oh, okay, so this word comes up. This starts to be added in here, right here. So that isn't in the early ones. So that's probably not legitimate. And, and they might go like, oh, and this even includes something here that these don't. And this process is called textual criticism. So that's what they, they try to figure that out. With verse 47, they figured out that, that it's in all these older ones, but it's not in the early ones. It's not in the early ones. And I know that this sounds like scandalous, but it's, it's not. Like they're, they're trying to like, oh, someone, like people that, are, that would go like, see, I knew they added stuff to the Bible, that kind of thing. It, it's, it's so boring. Like this stuff is like the, that they find is the, the most boring things you've ever heard of. Like they're literally going to find like, oh, the older manuscripts say uh, Jesus Christ, but the earlier ones, they say Christ Jesus. Like that's like a big discovery for them. Okay. Here's a, this, so this is one of the more major ones. This is one of the more major ones. This is verse 47 here. Here's what verse 47 would say if we left it in. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. You might think like, didn't we read that? And it's because it's repetitive. It just adds, it's just saying the same thing again. Here's why though. You can easily figure out if you look at this, you can figure out why did this get added in here. If you look at verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. 
verse 48 says, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and, my, and who are my brothers? Okay, so the, you can imagine the scribe copying this down and he's like copying down saying, okay, uh, his, his brother stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man, wait, who's this man? We don't know this man. Who, who is he replying to? We don't have this information. He, no one told him. I better add it in so everyone isn't confused. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. I'm just going to speak to you. And then he can reply to them. It's so dumb. Like, just leave it alone. We get it. We can figure out for ourselves that someone told him. But they just add it in there. So that ESV, they decided, let's just take it out because it's obviously added in later. It's not Matthew's original, original content. Um, that's it. And, end of the Bible college. All right, Jesus' true family. So Jesus is providing here the reason that he's really saying these things, the reason that he's saying, like, who are my mother and my brothers, and, and uh, these are the people that do the will of my father. He's saying that because he's providing a contrast. He's providing a contrast for, frankly, like the, this group of people that is mostly quiet, but the Pharisees are the ones that are constantly attacking him. The rest of the people, they're that crowd that after he healed the, the man, after he cast the demon out, they said, can this be the son of David? Right? They're hanging on his words because they're still interested. They want to know, could he be who he says he is? Could he be the Messiah, the one we're waiting for? Is this possible? And so they want to hear from him. And that's essentially what he's pointing out. He's like, listen, you guys are the, the evil bunch. You guys are the brood of vipers. These people are my family because they listen to me. They want to hear from me. They want to follow me. Not everyone was opposed to his ministry. There were those who were seeking to learn from them. And he, he highlights and honors them here by calling them brother and sister and mother. Those who choose to follow Jesus and accept him as Lord and Savior are part of the family of God. Now, this is really the one of the first times this idea is introduced that that people can be in the family of God if they are listening to Jesus, right? If they're following Jesus, they can be part of the family of God. This is one of the introductory statements that Jesus makes on this topic. It, it lays the groundwork for the Apostle Paul to say what he says in Romans 8, 14 through 17, where he says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, <clears throat> by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. He says, we can be adopted as sons and daughters of the king if we will follow him, if we will suffer with him. We'll wrap up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways for today. Number one, pray for open eyes and open hearts to see and accept the signs that Jesus has already given you. <clears throat> and I don't mean um, like extraordinary stuff. I'm talking about ordinary stuff, that there are things that he's already done for you, things that he's already showed you. 
Some of them in scripture, some of them just in your life, ways that he's been there for you. So often we have short-term memories with God where we only want to think about where we're at right now. We don't consider what he's already done, how he's already moved in our lives. What signs has he given you? What words has he given you that direct you, not in extraordinary ways, but in ordinary ways? Number two, as you clean up your life, be sure to fill it with godly things. If you want to change, if you want to replace behaviors, if you want to, to, to become more like Christ, you have to not just cut stuff out, but add stuff in in those places. Otherwise, it just comes back. And number three, rejoice that you have been adopted into God's family. I often have uh, statements like this, like the, this idea, rejoice that you have been adopted into God's family. And and I, and I know those are kind of like ethereal takeaways where you're like, well, what, I, what does that mean? How do I even do that? But there's, it's an identity thing that I think is really important and can be really powerful that how we think about ourselves really matters in terms of how we actually live. That if you act, do you actually think of yourself as a son or daughter of God? Do you actually think of, your, of, of God as your king? Do you actually think I am a son of the king? Do you actually think I'm a daughter of the king? If you actually thought that, if you actually became part of your identity, it would change the way you live. It would change the way you felt about yourself, about God, about other people even, about the mission that he's given us. So our identity is so important that when we read these things and we say things like this verse where we say like that he is we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We can read that. It's one thing to read that. It's another thing to say, yeah, I do call God Father, and I feel like he is my Father. I feel like he cares about me like a father cares about me. That we're children of God, that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Like, if we really believe that, it would dramatically change the way we live. But so often we can read it and we think it's good, but it doesn't really sink into who we feel like we are. So that's what I mean by that when I say something like rejoice that you've been adopted into God's family. Do you really feel that way? And how can you, how can, how can you change that? Let's pray. We're going to pray and then we'll take communion together. If you, if you didn't get elements on your way in, there will be people that come by with the baskets that you can get. Just kind of raise your hand and, and they'll be happy to bring you some. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can dig into your word. We can hear these powerful words of Jesus. And God, I pray that we would recognize that we are children of God, that we can be part of God's family when we follow Jesus, when we listen to what he has to say and, and do it. God, I pray that you would reveal to us things that we do need to cut out of our lives, things that we need to change and what we can replace them with. We thank you that you do show us signs every day that you love us, that you care for us, that you are committed to us daily, that you have steadfast love for us that we can count on. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.